This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Shubha. And it's been a real delight, actually. It's been a, a complete delight to be back here at the LBC, and I'm so very touched to be invited to give the talk to me. So, yeah, thank you. And uh, I have spent the morning with people here, meditating with you all and reflecting on the impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and insubstantiality. So I'm feeling a lot more enlightened than I was earlier, which is good. <coughs> So I've got the whiteboard, that looks very impressive, doesn't it? We won't be worried about that too much. And this room is where I first met the Dharma, so I think it's, you know, it feels very, very important to me to be uh, talking about my understanding of the Dharma as I live it, as we live it now. Apparently Banti says, Nirvana is not a sort of spiritual retirement home, far from the madding crowd of suffering humanity where we can settle down to enjoy our well-earned pension. <laughs> he says, it's a way that we live, it's a way that we respond to the present, the way that we respond to the cause of the day. And he puts a strong emphasis on the Dharma life as an active, creative, committed life. And I think this is possibly because um, at the time that he was first teaching in Britain, and, uh, and still now as well, um, he saw that quite often in the West there's an association of Buddhism with a, a quite a quietistic or inward-looking um, philosophy or religion, way of life. And apparently there's a, re- a recent book that's come out, which I can't remember its name, but it suggests that Buddhism is the perfect modern religion. Um, it's quite an individualistic religion, apparently, according to this book, uh, each of us striving to perfect ourselves in our own little world. And, uh, and this book suggests that that fits in very well with modern ideas of consumerism and individualism. So in a way, this is what Bantu is trying to sort of stress, that we don't need to uh, see Buddhism in that way. And he gave a talk uh, quite a long, no, large number of years ago called Enlightenment as Experience and Non-Experience. And in that talk, he says that enlightenment is the exact opposite of passively waiting for a big experience. So I'm, in this talk, I'm trying to open that idea up a bit. So the idea that enlightenment, that reality, is not about having an experience that's, that's mine, that I can somehow feel good about, because I have it. Um, and it's not even seeing something about my experience. It's actually a way of living. In Vidya Dhaka earlier, and today I was talking about talking about, uh, I suppose, our understanding as Buddhists as being a way of being conscious, a way of being aware, um, which Bhante has referred to as a creative way of being aware. And he gave this rather uh, extraordinary talk toward the end of his time in India. Um, this is Sangha I'm talking about. He gave a, a talk at the end of his time in India in which he defined his own religion. And he said, religion is the most important thing in our lives. That's how he defined religion in general. But he himself personally thought the most important thing in his life was that any human being can be friends with any other human being. Any human being can be friends with any other human being. I think that's an interesting way of defining Buddhism, really. I think uh, for myself, I would tend to think, um, well, what about all those really important Buddhist teachings, uh, shunyata, non-self, going beyond suffering, 
or the um, important teachings of Tantric Buddhism or Zen Buddhism. Surely just being friends with other people, with other beings around us, sounds a bit pedestrian and a bit obvious. And actually, to be honest, even a bit (laughs) off-putting. To be honest, there are some people I'd rather not try and be friends with. I had this horrible realisation a few years ago that there was actually some people who weren't even in the fourth stage of my metabarvana. They're kind of fallen off the edge of my metabarvana. I hadn't even noticed it. I had a bit of a shock when I realised that. Yeah, so Shipp has asked me to talk a bit about my experience in, uh, as part of team-based right livelihoods. And as she said, I spent nine years working at the Wild Cherry, and I'm now living and working with a team of women in South Wales where we run retreats to help women join the order. But um, I'd like to go back a little bit, um, at the risk of being self-indulgent, but here we are, got a chance, haven't I? Um, <laughs> my previous life, which, uh, as Shippo says, was actually, uh, I did a lot of rock climbing. In fact, at one point, I think I wrote down, I know my friend um, wrote down the insurance form where it said what your religion was in case you had to be shipped back dead, you know, and, uh, and he put mountaineer. And I thought, oh yeah, that's right, that is what, you know, that is what I, you know, thought was most important in my life. So when I was... Uh, Rock climbing, I used to think that I was quite happy with the idea of dying young. <laughs> but uh, I probably wouldn't live till after I was about 30. And uh, in a way, that seemed like the answer to, to quite a deep-rooted sense of um, a, a kind of irrelevancy of, of my life. I didn't really think it was particularly useful, my life. I couldn't really see much point in it. You doing okay there, Shredder Pushpa? Can you hear me? You've got your little thing. Temporary pause. I'm going to wired up the sound. Okay, is that a bit better? Yeah. Good. Okay. Sorry about that. Okay. So as I say, I thought that dying young seemed like an answer to the sense of um, sort of slightly uselessness of life somehow. I thought, what is the point of living till you're old? And during my life, up until I took up rock climbing, around about 22, 23... I had quite a lot of other different friends. I, had, I noticed I had sort of groups of friends. I had um, my university friends, and we used to discuss you know, life and politics and philosophy and get, flirt, you know, get drunk and flirt. And uh, then with other socialists and members of the Labour Party later on in my life, we used to argue just endlessly and uh, get drunk. <laughs> and, uh, and then later on I got involved with the feminist movement, and uh, we all tended to agree more there. We agreed on all the sort of details of patriarchy and sexism. And we didn't get as drunk as much, which was good. <laughs> but I did, I did find myself often feeling quite anxious that I wasn't fitting in. But I noticed that when I was climbing with friends, I had quite a different relationship to people. And uh, I was thinking of this as being a bit like sort of point where you tie the rope between yourself and the other person. It's actually it's quite a physical experience tying a rope on. And uh, at that point, you know that if you fall, the other person's going to either hold you or fall themselves. And uh, the same thing for myself. If my friend falls, then I need to actually be aware of them and 
and uh, hopefully catch it. So each of us has to take responsibility, not only for our own lives, but for our lives of our friends in that situation. And I was thinking that it's after being a bit like, well, there's, there's no passengers. There's no passengers in that life. And there's a level of trust that built up there that was quite different from anything that I'd experienced before. And uh, it's, a, it's an amazing way of getting to know somebody. And actually, it's also an amazing way of getting to know yourself. And uh, my kind of friendships have stayed important friendships through my life. So I thought this is like a, a sort of shared adventure, this kind of as- aspect of, of friendship. Um, and it made a, way for, uh, made a way for me to relate to people that bypassed the sort of competitiveness and the comparisons that I'd noticed in all my other friendships. Uh, yeah, and, and the sort of fear of difference, fear of being different from other people as well, uh, just um, evaporated when you're sort of frightened and up on a rock face and trying to get to the top. So then I joined the cherry, the wild cherry, um, and uh, I like all the metaphors around cooking. There's quite a lot of good sort of spiritual metaphors around cooking, uh, and they're very different from the stories of rocks and ro- uh, and ropes. My previous job, before I joined the Cherry, had been very, very quiet and peaceful. I'd been a self-employed botanical illustrator, which meant I sat very, very quietly in the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew, drawing very small plants. <laughs> uh, and then I moved to the Wild Cherry, um, which is quite hot and bothered, and uh, quite small, and um, there's about six or, six or seven of us working in a relatively small space, uh, in a small kitchen, as uh, Shubha explained, carrying large pots of heavy and potentially dangerous items. And I think one of the things that uh, really, really struck me about moving into that job was a sense of magic about it, actually, um, which, you know, didn't seem to fit with the, the kind of very ordinariness of the job. I suppose being, you know, working in a restaurant must be one of the most ordinary jobs that a woman can get after having been a botanical illustrator, which often felt a little bit special and a bit different. But there was a sense of magic, and I think that was about... Um, I sense that my, my inner world, uh, my kind of more secret world, my personal world, became, um, it became possible to actually express that or to feel it being expressed in my friendships and in my connections with the other people there. I thought it was a bit like a, a sort of TARDIS element of the work, a bit like it was bigger inside than it appeared from the outside. It's a bit like the um, very mundane part of my life suddenly started to become quite significant and my secret significant part of my life became more public more shared with other people and in a way I think the, uh, the sort of sense of a small team working together to run a restaurant, to run a project together was a kind of natural extension of the friendships that I've been building up through my climbing but because you have uh, money involved and actually trying to run a business involved, it made everything uh, in a way more real or more tangible. Um, if we got on well, you could feel the whole atmosphere in the restaurant changing, customers felt happier, the whole place felt more kind of rich and abundant. And if we weren't getting on well, everything became a bit tighter and uh, more claustrophobic. Yeah, so having uh, the sort of whole business, the shared project, meant that uh, we sort of uh, reflected each other back more strongly. And at that point, I was actually uh, sharing the community with the same people that I was working with. So I was trying to live and work with the same people. And uh, I noticed at that point that there was a, a, lot, more, um, a lot more in it for me. I realised that I was uh, a lot more aware 
that, um, that if somebody didn't like me, it would affect not only my home life, but also my work life, and, uh, and vice versa. And I had to really deal with my fear that people wouldn't want to stay around if they got to know me. If they really saw what I was like, they wouldn't like me. And that's a really big fear that I had to face. Uh, also, living and working with the same people meant that um, I had to bring all, all different aspects of myself into the picture. Um, all parts of myself had to be seen. I think before, when I had these different groups of friends, it was a bit like my climbing friends saw one part of me, my socialist friends saw a different aspect of me, and maybe my feminist friends or my family saw other sides of me, and I was quite a different person in those different groupings of people. But once, I, sort of once it was all in one place, I was living and working uh, with the same group of friends, I had to be more visible. It was a bit like all of me became seen. And another aspect that I found very difficult when I first joined the team was, uh, well, basically that I was quite afraid of conflict. I was quite afraid of um, people getting angry with me, of people getting angry with each other. And, uh, and once you're sort of um, cramped up together in a very small kitchen trying to run to a deadline of getting the food out at 12 o'clock, <laughs> tempers could get quite frayed, particularly after about 11.30 in the morning. So I had to actually start to deal with conflicts rather than running away from them. And I think that had been another aspect of having groups of friends. If I fell out with friends in one of my groups, I could think, oh, well, I've got other friends elsewhere. You know, just ignore them a bit. Hmm. So I had to actually uh, yeah, deal with my conflicts rather than running away. And I had to really look at the extent of ill will as well that I personally carried around. I think before that, I tended to think that it was other people who got angry with each other. <laughs> and I could be, I was usually quite cool and calm. But um, I discovered that actually I had quite a high degree of ill will going on. I used to call it R.I., righteous indignation. <laughs> no, 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 no one else does it, of course, do they? <laughs> anyway, yes, I had to have a, an R.I. buddy at one point. We'd have to um, grab each other's hands and run out the back and let off steam about something that we weren't happy about and then come back. So I think what was very, very important for me in that team situation was that I saw other people able to repair their difficulties, able to get over conflicts and able to actually communicate through difficulties and come out the other side, uh, which was completely magical, actually. And I don't think I'd ever really seen that happen before in that way, actually be able to really talk about the difficulty and then connect with other people at the same time. So I think there was a, a point at which I started to relax in that team into really believing that it was possible to, uh, I suppose in a way, to be a friend to other people, to all other beings, all other people, and <coughs> not just the nice ones. <laughs> I know for myself that uh, I, tend, I have a very long-standing tendency of not really trusting that friendships will stay around, not really trusting that my connections will stay. Uh, and I think that, tends, that can be the case for people with nihilistic views of the world, that we can find it hard to trust friendships. And, uh, and that this uh, way of working has been very, very important for me and uh, actually while looking at that more fully and uh, seeing through it a bit. I learned to let myself believe in positive values and uh, to sort of grow out in a way, grow out of the cynicism that uh, had been this normal part of my life. One of the important aspects of working together as a team was trying to develop a, a kind of attitude of abundance toward each other a sense that we were actually each bringing strengths rather than each bringing weaknesses. <laughs> um, There's a great line that I heard from someone, which is that we need to learn to um, build on each other's strengths rather than undermining each other on our weaknesses. 
So I think these, uh, I think they're very, very important insights for me as I worked at the Cherry for these nine years. But they can sound a bit psychological and uh, a bit like they're to do with my own personal um, tendencies, my own personal psychology. And, uh, and I was thinking, well, in a way, what was, uh, what was it about, uh, about these friendships, about these depths of friendships, that make it into a, a practice of, of insight, practice of reality? Sangha actually says that the hardest part of the spiritual life is finding the emotional equivalence of our intellectual understanding. So we can understand teachings like Shunita, um, like no self, uh, intellectually, but to actually live them out is quite a whole different thing. And he said that friendship is the emotional equivalent of the intellectual understanding of non-self. That friendship is the emotional equivalent of that more rational understanding. <clears throat> so I want to explore a bit what that means, and uh, this is rather quite start off with this idea that we're constantly rebuilding a sense of me. I've got me in capitals here, but um, so me is, uh, is kind of maybe something like this. Just put me in the middle. There. And uh, this sense of, of me, of who I am, is uh, something that I have to keep on manufacturing, I have to keep on sort of working on it. <coughs> I think of it uh, in terms of this picture as being a bit like a, a sort of frame. I've, I've kind of framed myself. You know those rather weird old-fashioned pictures that have very sort of frilly frames around them? So uh, it's a bit like I've got this kind of frame which I embellish at intervals and uh, I like to think about, this is me. And this frame, this kind of picture of me that I have to keep manufacturing, is, uh, well, it, it includes things as well. It includes various items that I, I like or I, I don't like. Um, so things like my clothes or my, my um, things that I own <coughs> and uh, special people and uh, places that are very important to me a place involved in that or things that I do as well kind of my activities like my climbing was a very strong sense of who I am who I, or I was at that time and uh, I noticed it carried on, even after, after I stopped climbing pretty completely. I still like to think of myself as a climber. <laughs> so there's sort of, maybe there's some sort of mountain somewhere in the background here. <laughs> They're part of me. <clears throat> so if I get all this kind of, if I get this frame comfortably set up, <clears throat> um, I kind of know how I'm going to behave in any situation. I know, I know what I'm like, and I know who I like and who I don't like. And... Uh, I know what I believe, what I think about things. Yeah, they, this sort of thought process is one, but I do like a sort of thought bubble. Can I? There's some thought bubbles that um, I know what I, you know, what I believe about the world. And of course, my friends are part of this pattern of me. <clears throat> they reinforce, you know, if they reinforce the overall picture, they fit in with me. So if they're all other mountaineers, for instance, um, they, maybe they've got some mountains in the background, then I think. Um, Oh, I think that's, uh, that's the sort of person I like, basically. Um, might want to spend more time with them. <coughs> I don't really know very much about them, but uh, I kind of sort of feel I want to sort of show them my best side, so I kind of put my little sparkly bits around the, the bits that I like about me, and I, I kind of hide the bits that I don't like about me, the grumbling bits or the bad-tempered bits, and kind of leave out the back. So. <coughs> Yeah, but uh, if there's somebody who 
challenges me for some reason. But they, the example I've come up with here isn't a very the same example I could think of, but I don't think it's a very nice example. But anyway, basically, I was very strongly um, identified with my politics for quite a lot of my life. Quite a strong sense of um, our political views. <coughs> and there's things like you know, CND or being feminist or something. And uh, um, very strongly identified with my socialist political views as well. So I sort of thought, well, maybe I met somebody over here who was uh, a conservative voter. <laughs> so I don't want to be, I don't want this to sound like I'm being heavy at people who vote conservative because that's not the point of what I'm trying to say is that I saw this person as somehow a threat and, uh, and I would start feeling spiky toward them. <clears throat> a bit like, mm, that um, tendency to sort of, yeah, to uh, some kind of body language would be part of that spikiness. <clears throat> I remember thinking, I don't actually know anybody who votes Conservative, so how come we've got a Conservative government? <laughs> Back in the days of Thatcher. So we can easily find ourselves polarising with other people. Uh, so these are my spiky bits. That's me, me polarising with this person over here. <clears throat> and my sense of who I am is uh, it's basically constantly changing according to who I find myself with and I, my sort of pattern, this rather elaborate sort of frame is um, interesting, perhaps a lot more interesting than, than theirs are, isn't it? So mine's quite significant and theirs are rather sort of boring. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so my sense of who I am is constantly challenged by other people, and if I like them, so that's one clear tip, <clears throat> then I worry that they're going to see my weaknesses, the ones that I keep hidden over here, uh, and then they won't like me. So that's a bit of a, you know, that's why I have to keep these bits all sort of shiny bits out of sight. But then at the same time, I find myself sort of comparing myself with them and, uh, and looking out for their weaknesses. I sort of think, oh, they've got this, um, I decided it's like the moral high ground. This is my, my politics, is often a sort of moral high ground. Actually, well, I think I'm the best and I know the right answers to everything. So if I see somebody else with a moral high ground reaching up into the heights, uh, I start to feel a bit irritated by it. <coughs> um, yes, yeah, so I start to look out for their weaknesses, and then I can feel a bit better about myself. I'm sure no one else has this problem. But <laughs> <laughs> and if someone suggests that I'm in the wrong, this person over here says <coughs> something important about conservative politics. <coughs> if someone suggests that I'm in the wrong, then I can get quite defensive and, uh, and quite negative. Um, but privately... I might start thinking, oh, maybe they're right. Uh, maybe they've got a point. Yeah, I don't show that bit to them. But then I have this kind of big puddle in the background here, which is um, low self-esteem. <coughs> it's kind of hidden by the, the moral high ground and the shiny bits. Yeah. Yes. And then we have this horrible moment when you realise that the things that you don't like about your friends are actually the things that you've got yourself, and you don't particularly like about yourself. <laughs> and that's like. So at that point, I started to polarise as a sort of... Um, it's almost a bit like there's a kind of part of me that I slightly separate myself out from, which has got all the bad bits in it. Um, the sort of, this, this sort of boggy patch at the bottom here is part of that. And I don't like that. So I can actually start to create a polarisation with myself where I don't like me either. There's obviously this part of me that I do like. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, so these refers to this kind of um, framework, this kind of pattern around ourselves. Uh, it's a carapace, a bit like a sort of shell. Uh, a carapace of self, he calls it. 
It has this kind of sad thing. And it's a project. It's something I have to keep going all the time. It has associated feelings, the kind of negativity over here, or the kind of desperate urge to please somebody over here that I like. Um, and a lot of projects, it's like ego projects. This is a, a great term that the Sancho came up with. So we, we tend to uh, think of ourselves in terms of ego projects. So this is me projecting myself into the future. I'm going to be, I don't know, something rather nice, I think. Something rather important. So that's my ego projects going on over here. But this carapace of self, this kind of shell of self that I'm building up all the time, is actually what causes me suffering. And uh, we were hearing a bit about that from Shepard just a bit earlier. So everything that I rely on to support this shell, <laughs> everything I rely on to support this very fragile me in the middle here, uh, is actually going to fall apart and come to an end. And at that point I'll suffer. I, didn't kind of, I, I drew a little sort of house over here, which um, is not very visible, but actually, although it's in the background, it's a very important house. It's the house that I was born in. And uh, it's actually in the process of being sold at the moment. My dad died a year ago. My mum died ten years ago. And this house is finally being sold. And I find it extremely painful. It's really, really weird. I haven't I hardly been there very much. I've been to visit my dad a few times. But um, selling this house has just been an extremely uh, weird experience. Of a large chunk of what I think of as me is like falling off the cliff and disappearing. And it's like... Like pulling a huge, great big part of my, you know, my, my being uh, out of where it should be, and uh, so yes, yeah, so this, this part of this part of what I think of as myself is about to, um, yeah, about to go, and I don't like it. <clears throat> and actually, as I'm trying to keep all these um, patterns together, trying to please the people I want to please, and trying to fend off the people I don't want to please. Um, there's quite a lot of anxiety involved in, in sort of keeping this whole structure. You can kind of feel the energy involved in it. There's quite a lot of anxiety in keeping that structure in one piece. So this is me thinking of myself as intrinsically separate. Um, I think I'm, uh, I'm lasting. I think I'm the same person as I was yesterday. Uh, I think that I'm single. I think there's only one me. And I think of myself as, as separate from other people. So that's me having to sort of separate myself off and, and try to please the people I like and, and get rid of the people I don't like. And um, it's an interesting sort of thing to notice that actually this thing that I call me is actually made up of these patterns of relationship, these uh, sort of edges, so to speak, between myself and others. This, uh, in fact, this very important me that I've illustrated here is in fact defined by my relationships. It's completely defined by relationships and it has no existence outside of those relationships or outside of these patterns of relating. So I use these edges, I use these relationships to define who I am. And uh, I thought of this as being a bit like, well, I, I don't like them, this is a conservative voter. I don't like them because I'm the sort of person who doesn't like conservative voters. I'm the sort of person, that's, that's this me here. <clears throat> but on the other hand, clearly I'm the sort of person who doesn't like conservative voters because I don't like them. See that, that bit? I don't like them because I'm the sort of person who doesn't like conservative voters. I don't like conservative voters because I don't like them. So there's a sort of way in which I find myself uh, always in relationship to others. 
What's important to notice here is that um, this is not what spiritual friendship is about. <laughs> I was noticing when we were reflecting on um, marks of conditioned existence, the uh, marks of insubstantiality um, and uh, impermanence and dukkha and unsatisfaction. It can be quite a bleak reflection for me. I can find it quite um, hard to think about those truths, those Buddhist truths, without feeling a bit um, like, uh, oh, well, what's the point then? <laughs> and if, like me, you tend toward nihilism, I can end up feeling a bit like, well, I'm just made up of these um, insubstantial little things that just evaporate if I look at them. Uh, and in that case, what's the point of anything? I think um, this great line that if I'm just made up of bits of gristle and occasional thoughts, what's the point of anything? What's the point of practicing in order to see that I'm just made up of bits of gristle and occasional thoughts? <coughs> um, I might as well go out and enjoy myself while I can. So this is why spiritual friendship is a very, very significant path. It has been a very important path for me, because in a way it helps me open up this pattern um, well, without it ending up feeling a bit, what's the point of anything? So basically, we come along to the, I come along to the Buddhist Centre, I'll speak for myself here, uh, like this. And uh, as I use metta and ethical practice and start to communicate more deeply with real people, uh, rather than with all these sort of, um, I don't know, extra sort of... It's not like acting, isn't it? It's a bit like acting myself all the time. So if I actually start to learn how to communicate more deeply and more truly with people, you get this sort of sense of connections that aren't just... Um, that aren't just reactions. I find myself starting to learn from people and uh, I'm realising that actually this thing that I call me is connected to other people. <clears throat> so I start to see myself as part of bigger patterns. So it's a bit like there's a, you know, once I'm talking to this person, it's a bit like there's a, there's a conversation going on, there's a friendship being formed, there's communication happening, which is... Um, not just me reacting to the other person, but, but something bigger happening that we both are part of. So we're both taking part of that. I'm taking part in this conversation, and so are they. And as a result of this, we're both changed. In a sense, you can still see impermanence happening here. I'm no longer the same person as I was before I started giving this talk. You're no longer the same people that you were before you started listening to it. We're each, we've each made connections with each other, and through this day we've had um, quite strong communications with each other, some of us. And uh, we're changed by those communications. We're no longer the same. That's the truth of impermanence. And if we see the truth of impermanence as being about me being part of bigger well, conversations, really, um, it, it, kind of, it becomes more encouraging. It's no longer sort of, what's the point then? It becomes, uh, I sort of begin to see that, well, actually, I make a difference. I'm not separate after all. If I act more skillfully, then this conversation becomes a more skillful conversation, a more positive conversation. So seeing myself as part of bigger things uh, helps me to, um, well, helps me on a sort of psychological level to get over some of these, to get over myself, <laughs> as people say, get over myself. <coughs> but also, um, yeah, to see myself as part of bigger pictures. 
by through doing this with my friendships, I'm being lured beyond the self-other dualism. I'm being lured, I'm being attracted, being enticed into sort of seeing bigger pictures. I start to realise that other people have something to teach me, that I'm not uh, a separate, isolated individual. I'm part of a vibrant, ever-changing kind of kaleidoscope of, uh, of mutual responsiveness, really, of connections. At this point, I think, for me anyway, insight into selflessness stops being a, a kind of rather terrifying glimpse into the void and, uh, and becomes a shared dance, a kind of pattern of um, connectedness, of responsiveness. And during that um, shared dance, my self-important me becomes less hard-edged. This uh, rather defended pattern um, can just evaporate a bit, basically. And, yeah, and I'm, I'm less hard-edged in it. I'm less brittle and less defended. <clears throat> so what I'm doing here is I'm redefining my connections in terms of my love and connection with other beings instead of in terms of the sort of coercion that I'm trying to do in the other way. So clearly this kind of friendship is different from the ordinary sort of friendship, spiritual friendship. And uh, <laughs> there's a friend of mine who is really struggling with the question of what friendship means. She actually didn't like the word friendship and she wanted to have a different word for what we were trying to do in the movement in Sri Ratna. And she came up with a way of looking at it, which I quite liked. She said it was like a weaving strands of history. It's like having strands of history which we weave in among our friends. So friendship is not something fixed. It's something that we weave all the time, that we create all the time as we communicate with each other. And we change each other through that process, through the process of weaving our friendships. So this suggests that these friendships are not about being best buddies, uh, and they're not also about being sort of cool, casual acquaintances. They have a quality of deep responsiveness, uh, a deep sort of interest and connection with each other. It's a sense in which this is completely intrinsic to being a human being. Um, all the sort of uh, energetic kind of posturing that I tend to do <laughs> is actually not the sort of natural way of being a human being. It's a bit like the sort of natural mother... Uh, natural love of a mother for her child being expanded out to all beings. And there's a sense in which, while that's a very, very steep practice, it's quite a difficult thing to take on and do, especially when other people aren't doing what you want them to do, which often happens. And I think um, one of the things that I noticed myself, anyway, it's been a really um, helpful part of this practice of um, yeah, learning to respond to other people has been a practice of listening more deeply, listening more uh, fully to other people. I think before that, when I was um, very immersed in this sort of horrendous pattern of selfing, I tended to think very quickly that I knew what other people were. If I saw that someone voted conservative, I immediately put a whole box around them and assumed that I knew who they were and what sort of person they were and what else they were like in their lives. Um, uh, so I, I guess, yeah, it's been a matter, it's been a process of listening to people and of asking more questions rather than assuming that I know. I think in a way there's a, probably a couple of stages to this practice. There's a stage of actually differentiating what I, what I am um, from all these reactions and uh, trying to please some people and reacting to other people. I have to actually find out, well, who, who's the me um, behind that? Who's, what do I really think for myself? 
away from the sort of pressures and expectations of all the various different uh, people that I'm surrounded by, the different groups that I'm part of. So that means noticing that I can, take, I can make choices. I do have choices. I can uh, make a difference. That means taking myself a bit more seriously, to be honest. It's interesting, all this kind of um, posturing that I had on before um, felt like taking myself very seriously indeed. So this is a sort of different kind of seriousness, I think, somehow. But as I look more deeply at this sense of a me, uh, and I realise I do have these strong connections with people, um, I see that actually this, this thing that I call me is part of the conditions that go into making up the bigger pictures in the world. So I was thinking, for instance, this festival day at the LBC, each of us has brought ourselves in. We've each contributed to that. We've each made it happen. If it wasn't for all of us, there wouldn't be a festival day at the LBC. So we're kind of... Um, well, each of us part of that, and therefore we're not separate, isolated individuals. We're part of something bigger. And in this way, we can see that we're not um, we're separate, isolated selves, I suppose. <clears throat> I notice that I make a difference. If I can try to be a bit more positive, then this day the RBC will be that, just that bit more positive. Yeah, I benefit, and we all benefit. Banti, um, you know, you've been having these discussions with Sabuti recently, um, some of which Sabuti has written up into papers. But um, in his last discussion with Sabuti, apparently, he said something like that probably for many people, communication of this kind, so this is the sort of spiritual friendship that I've been talking about, communication of this kind is the most likely basis for a real breakthrough. Um, because in friendship, a whole person is involved with another whole person. He's saying that's the most likely basis for a real breakthrough. Really seeing beyond the uh, fragile, defended self um, that we just carry around as normal, don't we? The basis for seeing through that is going to be friendship, spiritual friendship. <clears throat> so I think of this as being a bit like, um, well, this idea that how I relate to my friends affects them. And it affects me as well. If I'm able to be more positive and creative, I become a more positive and creative person, on a whole, on a good day. So it's as if there's a sort of, um, a, well, a virtuous circle. There's a kind of uh, energy in that change that um, we influence and we are influenced by the situations we find ourselves in. And this is how we create what Bant has called the positive group, kind of situation in which we can all grow Instead of holding each other down, holding each other in our sort of boxes and shapes that we think we ought to be, we can actually encourage each other to be different. And there's a sort of, uh, I suppose there's a lineage or a kind of um, tendency, uh, yeah, I'm just going to call it a lineage, uh, in any community of people uh, that we find ourselves part of. And we can change that lineage, we can affect it if we act more creatively and more positively. I think here's an example of this, that uh, while I was working at the Wild Showy, uh, one of the members of the team referred to what she called a threshold of generosity. And I think you can see that within the community, the whole Buddhist community, the Sangha. As we get to know our friends, we start to look out for them and help them, basically. And as we find that um, generosity coming our way, as we feel ourselves uh, helped and treated kindly by other people, there's a, kind of a, there's a point at which you realise that actually instead of me having to defend myself and de- defend my patch, 
really sparkly bits and sparky bits, I can actually relax into the sense that other people are going to look out for that too. And uh, other people are equally interested uh, in, in me doing okay. I noticed that the cherry, it suddenly became, instead of me looking out for myself, looking out for number one and having to sort of fight my patch, make sure other people kept in their places, uh, it, turned, it turned out that actually there were six other people looking out for me as well as me, mm-hmm. which is just a magical experience, a very, very strong experience for me. But this level of harmony, it takes, it takes time and commitment to build up. And um, I'm sure we've all experienced that to some extent in the Sangha. I was thinking, in a way, our modern lives are geared to a very, very different attitude. And um, I read a book by a guy called Sennett a little while ago. It's called Together. He was, uh, I think he's some kind of sociologist. But he was talking about how in modern life, our work and lives are geared to changing relationships and work situations where we're becoming de-skilled. He said de-skilled in, co- in cooperation. So it means that we find it more difficult to build old patterns of trust respect and loyalty that used to be the norm in human working relationships. Modern working relationships just don't work that way. People tend to move jobs in a couple of years and it's harder to actually build up that debt to trust. It would have been normal. He describes the recent emergence of what he calls the uncooperative self, uh, someone who feels other people as a stress or a demand on them. And I certainly recognise that in myself. There's a sort of fear that other people become somehow dependent on me uh, and definitely an equal fear of me becoming dependent on other people that had to sort of pretend that wasn't going to happen. And uh, I was thinking my uncooperative sense, my uncooperative self, tends to, to want to maintain an atmosphere of being a bit hard to please. And I thought, well, maybe that's uh, in the vain hope that other people will try harder. <laughs> and I got this great quote from Eeyore that I'm just going to have to say. I'm not entirely sure if it really fits in here, but I just love it. Apparently Eeyore said somewhere, I don't know where, he said, I might have known, said Eeyore. After all, one can't complain, I have my friends. Somebody spoke to me only yesterday. And was it last week or the week before that Rabbit bumped into me and said, bother? <laughs> the social round, always something going on. <laughs> so you have to do that in a proper accent, which I'm not going to try and do, the Eeyore style. Something about being hard to please. Yeah. So in the spiritual community, in the Sangha, what we're, what we're creating between us is an atmosphere of generosity. Uh, an atmosphere of abundance. And as we do this, we gradually feel more connected to each other, more connected to the world in general. As we have less to defend, less to defend, you see all my defences up there? Um, we're more open, and it, we feel lighter. Actually, in a way, we, feel, um, we end up feeling a bit more confident, I think. There's something about this desperate urge to try and present myself and look how I should look that is uh, deeply, deeply unconfident. Very afraid. And this is the flavour of uh, enlightenment. Its enlightenment is a quality of responsiveness to the world. I was thinking this, it's a real sort of cliche of, of stories that you get when you get the Knights of the Round Table where you get Star Trek. You get these kind of um, stories of, of uh, groups of people, I suppose. They're not the stories of the isolated hero who's carrying out their exploits to a sort of um, impressed audience. Um, but they're a group of peers who are encouraging each other um, and covering each other's backs. And I wanted to quote a bit from, bit from Shakespeare here as well. He goes, uh, We happy few, we band of brothers. So that comes from Henry V. It's this guy, um, King Henry, who's saying that he's glad that it's just a small bunch of people against a very large enemy. 
Because in that way, in that uh, situation, the honour is the greater. He says, we happy few, we band of brothers. And he goes on to say that although he's the king, and everybody else isn't the king, obviously, um, everybody who fights together on this day are made equal by that shared experience. So I think there's something, um, for me, very important about that. I think in my days when I had to have a moral high ground, I had to sort of live on my moral moral high ground somewhere out there, I often feel quite isolated from other people. And uh, there's something about having an arrogance attitude um, that made me feel quite lonely and quite afraid. And um, I think in this in the spiritual life, I found a place where I can feel more um, more deeply connected in a much more satisfying way. And this is what, uh, in a way, this is all that the order is. The order, the true Ratna Buddhist order, is simply a network of friendships, a network of these connections, these deep connections with each other. Banti refers to it as a dance, and he calls it a vital mutual responsiveness. A vital mutual responsiveness that's on the basis of common spiritual ideal and a common practice. This is something that we build up in the spiritual community. So gradually. It's as if we're integrating ourselves around this common ideal. A shared sense of our purpose in the world. A sort of shared myth, a shared project. It's the project of being friends to the world, basically. The project of becoming able to see all other beings as potential friends. And it's the project that we uh, come across when we see the story of Avalokiteshvara, the thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara, reaching out, the Bodhisattva reaching out with his arms, thousand arms, <laughs> thousand hands, <coughs> to reach out to all beings. <coughs> so I'm going to finish this talk with a, a quote from a guy who was writing in the first century AD. He's an Indian Buddhist and he's, he wrote verses in praise of the Buddha. So this is a couple of these verses in praise of the Buddha. He says, Having brushed aside doubts about whether or not it could be done, of your own free will you took this helpless world under your protection. You were kind without being asked. You were loving without reason. You were a friend to the stranger and a kinsman to those without kin. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 